You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Back in 2014, I went on a trip to see whales. Not whales, not W-H-A-L-E-S, not the marine mammal, but the country whales, W-A-L-E-S. Wales is a country that's actually located inside another country, and there's three other countries located inside that country. It's super weird. It's a thing that British people do. Uh, Ask Caleb Shockley about it. He lived there. I don't really get how it all works, but that's a fact. It's a country inside another country. And I learned that, actually, because before going to Wales, I wanted to get as much information as I could about the place I was traveling to. I wanted to learn about the culture, the history, the architecture. And there was a fascinating fact that I learned about Wales in this time of researching uh, the, the country. The fact is this. There are more castles per square mile in the country of Wales than in any other country on planet Earth. More castles per square mile. That means that you're more likely to just stumble upon your castle while walking your dog on a morning walk there than anywhere else in the world. It's fascinating. And that naturally sent me down this Google rabbit trail of studying castles. I wanted to see what castles were in Wales, what the architecture was like, who lived there, the kings and the royal courts, why moats existed and drawbridges existed. I wanted to learn as much as I could about castles. And so when I arrived on the shores of Wales, I felt like I had a pretty good idea of what castles were. I felt like I knew what a castle was because I knew a lot about castles. And then I actually walked into one, and I was dwarfed by the walls, and I got to see the rooms that they lived in, and they were way more expansive and way more impressive than Google Images could show me. I actually like, descended down into a real dungeon where people were really chained and really lived and died. It's a little dark, but also a little surreal to be in that sort of place. And I realized quickly that as much as I might have known about castles, I couldn't really know what a castle was until I walked into one. I found out there was a distinct difference between intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge. We're in the middle of a sermon series here at the Spring Midtown called Christ's Vision for the Church. Uh, We're going through the the book of Ephesians in the New Testament together. And the book of Ephesians gives us this really comprehensive cosmic picture of the gospel. And then it leads us to say, what do we become as the people who follow Jesus, as the people who uh, hear this gospel message? What sort of church are we to become because of it. And today, we're actually going to be uh, comparing intellectual knowledge about God to experiential knowledge of knowing God, and how the latter, that experiential knowledge, starts to do something in us. It starts to transform us bit by bit. And then when you have a group of people together like the church who are constantly being transformed, then that church becomes a transforming force in the world around us. If you have a Bible, turn with me in it to the book of Ephesians. It's near the back of your Bibles if you're flipping there. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We're going to have it up on the screen for you as well to follow along. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that... According to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you're being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth 
and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have noticed, as we're reading through verses 14 through 21 here, it's mostly a prayer. He starts in verse 15 by saying, I pray, and he closes in verse 21 by saying, Amen. What you may not have noticed is just before that prayer, he says a curious phrase. He says, for this reason, but then he doesn't give the reason, which is confusing for us when we read this passage. All right, Paul, what's the reason? Like, what are you writing about here? And in order to understand the reason he's writing, the reason he's praying this prayer, we have to remember where he's come from in this letter. See, in the previous chapters, Paul has given us this this huge picture of the gospel message, how we as humans were originally created to be the stewards of life, that we were supposed to bring flourishing in the world through our unity with God, through our unity with each other, and through our unity with the planet. But we all, in our own ways, have severed those connections. We all have actually brought about death and decay in a world that was meant to have flourishing and life. But Paul says that's not the end of the story. So he says that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has come to restore all of those connections, to bring that flourishing and life back in a new creation. And that happens for us individually, but that also happens for everything in the world. So systems of injustice and oppression are also healed by this God. He uses this picture of Christ as the head, this redemptive and restorative power, and that we as the church are the body. That is, we are the hands and the feet, the arms and the legs that bring about Christ's redeeming and restoring power in the world around us. And so the first couple chapters just before this, we're kind of dealing with the what what Jesus has done, and what we as the church are supposed to be. And now, he's talking a little bit about the how. His prayer is for how we become the sort of church that brings about redemption and restoration in a broken world. And there's three different hows that Paul mentions in this prayer that I want to explore together here today. These three hows are uh, the, the nature of what we as the church are supposed to become in order to be this redeeming and restoring force. And the first of those hows is in verses 16 and 17, he says that the Spirit of God arrives in our inner being, that Christ dwells within us. And that phrase, inner being, is one that his Greek audience would have known well. There's actually a, a, a scholar, a, a biblical scholar named William Barclay, who talks about uh, the Greek understanding of this phrase, inner being. And he mentions that it was multifaceted to his audience, that the inner being was not just a heart or a soul, as we talk about it. It had multiple layers to it. One of the layers he mentions is the the, uh, aspect of reason, that in our inner being, we are able to discern what is right and what is wrong. We as humans have in our souls this reason that can guide us. Paul is saying here that God arrives in our hearts, the Spirit of God arrives in our inner beings to change our reason and really to move it towards life instead of death. See, our reason has been corrupted by a world that exists with death and decay as the most powerful forces in it. Our understanding of right and wrong have been governed by broken systems. And the Spirit of God has come to give us a better understanding of right and wrong. That's what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount does for us, those of you that are familiar. It's his biggest sermon, and he tells us all about how this way of the kingdom, this new way that Jesus is bringing into the world, it changes our understanding of right and wrong. For instance, he mentions 
that we as humans should not be people who harbor resentment for our enemies. We should not be people who harbor anger against people for things that they've done. Instead, we should forgive them. And then the disciples who follow him are a little confused. They're like, all right, forgive, but like, like how long? Like how long do I have to forgive? And he's like, forever. He uses a phrase, 70 times 7, never stop forgiving. What he's doing there is he's correcting our reason because our reason as humans has been corrupted by a desire to win over other people, to bring about our own retribution in justice. That's not how we were made to live because that involves me dominating another person rather than living in unity with them. And what's fascinating is that empirical data has started to back up Jesus' claim that he made thousands of years ago. There was a study done by a few psychologists uh, a few years ago they were headed by a guy named Fred Luskin, Dr. Fred Luskin. And the conclusions of the study were this, that forgiveness reduces depression, increases hopefulness, decreases anger, improves spiritual connection, and increases emotional confidence. All of these inner parts of ourselves that have become corrupted get healed when we have our reason corrected by the Spirit of God in our inner being. And the flip side of that, if we want to push against that correction from the Spirit of God, if we want to continue to harbor resentment, well, that will lead us towards death, according to this study. It says that harboring resentment in your heart is shown to increase blood pressure and increase your risk of heart attacks and heart disease. Literally, the way of Jesus, when this inner being gets transformed by his Spirit, it moves us towards life and pushes us away from death. So that's one thing that Paul is mentioning here. Our inner beings have been transformed by the Spirit of God, and that moves us to be redeeming and restoring people in the world. But to the ancient Greeks, it wasn't just reason that was part of your inner being. There were other layers to it. There was your conscience, for instance. As much as you might like to know what's right and what's wrong, as much as that intellectual knowledge might help you, you still need to kind of feel what's right and wrong. You need to know in a deeper experiential way what is right and wrong. And the conscience does that for us in our inner beings. And so Paul is saying here that the Spirit of God doesn't just stop with our reason, it moves to the level of conscience. It actually starts to change how we respond and feel about our actions. It starts to show us how far off we are from the people we were made to be. C.S. Lewis has a good quote about this dynamic that happens in our conscience when we become Christians. He says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. And when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. This is what following Jesus does for us. This is what the arrival of the Spirit of God does for us. It puts Jesus right in front of us and shows us his love and his grace and his justice and his mercy. And we realize how unloving we are. We realize how ungracious we are. We realize all of the things that we have been made to be that we fall short of. But what's interesting here is that it's not done out of a sense of guilt or shame. It's not done so that you will power your way forward. Notice, most, most of human history consists of human efforts to try to willpower our way to fixing the problems in the world. We do that through political ideologies. We do that through moral improvement systems. We do that through self-help books. But world history is a long line of bodies that have failed to fix the world on their own. Paul is saying here that it's only the Spirit of God arriving in us that does this and our reception of his grace and his love. We get closer to Jesus, we realize that we aren't the people we're made to be, and then we realize we need Jesus to make us into those sorts of people. We need his spirit to start to transform us, and so we keep returning him, not out of a sense of guilt and shame, but out of a desire to become the people we were made to be. 
out of his desire to be transformed by his character. And always, always starting with his grace. So that's the second part of this inner being. But they didn't just stop there. Because you can know right and wrong, and you can feel right and wrong, but that still doesn't necessarily change your desires. Your desires still need to shift. We as humans have lived most of our lives with desires that are turned inward. There's a famous theologian named Augustine. He talks about this. He uses a Latin phrase, incurvitus in se, which means curved inward on ourselves. We as humans have taken the God-given gifts of life and creativity and flourishing, and we've turned them inward to benefit ourselves. We're mired in this desire to uh, self-focus, but we were made to be people who give ourselves away for the world. So we feel this conflict in us. Paul mentions this conflict in Romans. He says, I do the things that I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, and it's this constant struggle. I need Jesus to continue to change my will. And so Paul is saying that when the inner being gets transformed by the Spirit of God, our wills start to turn outward. Our wills don't stay caved in on ourselves. These huge metal doors are opened up, and we become the sort of people who give ourselves away, because that's what Jesus did. If the same spirit that indwelled Jesus, that led him to give every part of himself away for the sake of others, if that spirit lives in us, then that means we become people who try to give ourselves away for others. So that's the first how here that Paul is mentioning in this passage. The inner uh, being is transformed by the spirit of God. And when that happens, it changes our reason. It changes our conscience. It changes our will. There's a second how, though, that he brings up here. He's saying that we become the church we're made to be when we're rooted and grounded in love. And the word love is something that gets thrown around a lot in our culture. And the unfortunate thing is that English only has one word to describe a variety of different expressions and emotions. I love pizza, and I also love my wife. Those aren't the same thing, right? One of those I have committed to my whole life. Not pizza, in case you were wondering. I do love pizza. One of those, I put a ring on a finger. If there was a finger on my pizza, I wouldn't eat it, right? They're different (laughs) levels of love. But we use the same word to describe both of them. Thankfully, the Greek language that Paul is writing in has different words for love to describe these different expressions. And so the word he's using here is a particular type of love. Some of you who are Christians have probably heard this word before. Christians like to throw it around. It's agape love. That's the word he mentions here. It's the same word that's used to describe the love of God for the world. The same word that's used to describe Jesus, who came and gave his life for everyone else. This will that was turned outward to others to bring about life and flourishing. So this is a self-giving love that Paul is describing here. It's a love that he's saying we all need to have for the world. It's a love that's committed to the care and service of others, independent of what they do in response, or independent of whether they've earned it or not. It doesn't matter what the one being loved does or doesn't do. What matters is our love for them. It's a giving away of ourselves, independent of of the response. Agape love is the sort of love that helps push someone's car when it's stuck in the road and doesn't ask for a reward. It's love that gives money and time to those who can't really pay it back, those who are poor and needy and vulnerable. It's love that cares for people that society overlooks, the people that come here to a women's center, that society misses. He's saying that the church must be rooted and grounded in that sort of self-giving love. 
And the images he uses are pretty interesting to explore as well. Rooted is an agricultural metaphor, and grounded is an architectural metaphor. So he's kind of playing around with a couple different images here. First, the idea of roots. Roots serve as a connection that a plant has to the essential nutrients that it needs to get from the soil beneath it. It's a connectedness to the things that allow the plant to flourish and for a tree, for instance, provide shade and fruit. That means that the church is only the church when it's rooted in giving itself away for the sake of the world, as Jesus did. The church is only the church when it's rooted in that sort of agape love. Being the church means being so connected to the source of self-giving love in Jesus that the rest of the world can't help but be nourished by that sort of soil. But it doesn't just stop with the agricultural metaphor. He continues to use an architectural metaphor. He uses the word grounded, which refers to sort of a building's foundation. It's the base upon which everything is built. That means that everything we do as a church, every program, every event, every part of what we do should be focused on giving ourselves away, on this agape, self-giving love. So self-giving love should be the soil we root in and the concrete we build upon. But the reality is, the church oftentimes hasn't been this, especially in our country. There's actually a whole movement that was sparked uh, back in the 60s and 70s called the church growth movement. And the heart behind it, I think, was actually a decent one. The idea was, let's get the gospel message out to as many people as possible. Let's figure out empirically how to get this message into the ears and the hearts of everyone uh, we can. But what it quickly became was a formula whereby you would have one charismatic leader, a CEO type, and the charisma was the most important thing for that leader. The character, that's fine, but the charisma was the most important thing. And so we elevated people at the front of a room and said, that person gets people in the doors. Get them at the front of the room. And then behind that charismatic leader, we said we need programs and events that reach a certain particular demographic. That we don't want to see diversity because diversity is something that could cause division. Instead, we want to bring as many of the same sort of people into a room as possible because the same sort of people want to be around the same sort of people. This is an easy formula for growth, and it's really what many companies use. It's a very business-minded model. But while it started with good intentions, what happened was that the church devoted all of its money and all of its time and all of its energy to building ourselves up, to raising up our own systems rather than giving ourselves away to the world. And so we focused on having a singular leader who was really charismatic and really well-spoken, right? but really maybe didn't have the character we'd like behind it. Maybe he didn't look a whole lot like Jesus. And then we developed a product that we could get people in the doors to consume. The result was a church that often taught and made decisions based on what would allow it to last longer or get bigger, rather than based on how we might incarnate the love of Jesus to the world. And that idea, focusing on bigger being better, that's a very American ideal. Bigger is not intrinsically better, according uh, to the Christian faith. In fact, if bigger really were better, if crowds were an immediate sign of success, then Jesus was an abject failure. Because Jesus, on the cross, was deserted by everyone. He had one disciple. One of his closest friends was there and a few women. Everyone else, all the crowds were gone. At the moment where Jesus capitalized on the self-giving love that he had, 
he was deserted by everyone. So crowds, numbers, they're not necessarily the sign of success. They're not necessarily the sign of what we need to be as the church. Now, don't hear me wrong on this. I'm not saying that big necessarily means bad either. The point is not the bigness. There are big churches that give themselves away. There are big churches that serve the community, that constantly are focused on giving themselves away for the sake of others. Big is not necessarily bad, but it's also not necessarily good. What's important is our posture to growth. Are we trying to grow as the church in order to build up our own thing, in order to protect and guard the system that we've developed, or are we trying to grow so that we can keep giving ourselves away? That's the notion that we're supposed to be rooted and grounded in, agape, self-giving love. And when we don't do that, when we exist to build our own thing, when we exist to protect ourselves and our structures, people stop going to church because they realize that church is no different than the rest of the world. Church is just like another business that tries to exist for its own sake. It's just like another restaurant that tries to exist for its own sake. And that's why, during the era of the church growth movement over the last few decades, we've seen the sharpest decline in church attendance in American history. Fewer people attend church today than they ever have because when they look at the church, they see another worldly institution that just exists to build up their brand or their thing. There's actually a, a really good quote here I wanted to share with you guys from a guy who, who is, he's a biblical scholar, and he uh, wrote a commentary on Ephesians. His name is Tim Gombis. He said this, Evangelical culture, at least in the U.S., is almost completely beholden to triumphalism, the notion that God is magnified through human power, prestige, political influence, and outward success. And I want to be honest and candid with you guys, as somebody who now finds himself pastoring a church over the last few weeks. Hear this truthfully for me. I want to see the Spring Midtown grow. I want to see it grow. I want to see hundreds of people showing up here every week. I want to see so many people that we get to plant another church, that we can make this place self-sustaining and can immediately give ourselves away in a new expression of church. But I don't want that growth to happen because we've protected and prioritized our stuff. I don't want that growth to happen because I'm some great CEO, charismatic leader. I don't want that to happen because we have a better product than the church down the road. I want that to happen because this place is so obviously an example of the transforming love and grace of Jesus. That every single one of us goes into our lives, into our uh, relationships with our coworkers and our neighbors, into serving at Hope Women's Center, into going door to door here in the neighborhood. I want everyone in this community to be a part of that sort of church. Because that's what brings people in. That's what people look at and say, that's different than the business or the restaurant. That's different than building a brand. That's different than consuming a product. That's a community of people who have been transformed by something. And I need to figure out what that is. That's what growth really looks like in the church. That's what it means to be rooted and grounded in love. So that's the second how here in this passage. Paul is praying for us to be the sort of church community that's rooted and grounded in giving ourselves away for the world, not in protecting our own stuff. And then finally, the third how he brings up. This kind of brings it all together. He mentions that uh, he wants to pray for us to know the love of Christ. And that knowledge is not just an intellectual knowledge, it's an experiential knowledge. The words he uses here, comprehend and know, they refer to a deeper experience of the love of God in our lives. And I know for many of us, that's a hard thing 
to quantify. It's a hard thing to quantify what experiencing love looks like, right? It's kind of this mysterious thing. And so the question becomes, well, how do we experience the love of Christ? What does that really look like in our lives? And in order to illustrate it, I actually uh, brought a chair up here. And I'm going to ask my friend, uh, who do I want to call up here? Who do I have power over? David Itriad. I'm going to call you up here. Everyone give David a hand. <laughs> well, hold on, hold on, man. I'm giving the instructions here, right? Don't jump to things. His wife's laughing in the back, which is great. Great stuff. She's happy for him. Uh, David, I'm going to ask you to sit in this chair. All right, that's all I needed. You can go and uh, sit back down. You're good. Okay. Thanks, David. Everyone give David a hand. All kidding aside, how did David know, really know, that that chair was going to hold him? I mean, he had some helpful empirical data to back it up, right? He had four legs on a chair. He saw that it might have some structural integrity, but that was intellectual knowledge. That's something he could glean just by looking at it. In order for him to really know that the chair would hold him, he had to sit in it, right? Now, he made that look really easy for us, but if I had a different sort of chair up here, it might have made him question things a little bit, right? If there were three legs, or uh, it was a little rickety, maybe there's some cobwebs, he might have had to like, inspect it a little bit more, or might have sat a little bit easier, right? Friends, the only way that we can know something, actually experience and know something, is to trust it. David had to trust this chair to hold him up. That was the only way he could know that it would hold him. The only way to know anything is to trust in that thing. It's the only way we know anything in our lives. I know my wife loves me and that she's going to love me for the rest of her life. I know that because I've entrusted myself to her and she has responded in trust to me. The only way I knew that was by getting down on a knee and proposing. That was a risk. I had to trust that she really did love me. The only way I know that this floor will hold me is because I walk on it. The only way to know that each step I'm not going to fall through the floor, well, it's because I've trusted the floor. I know that Jesus Christ has expansive love and grace for me and for everyone in the world. I know that he's bringing redemption and restoration, and I know that because I've trusted him. And he's done things in my life. I can give you a laundry list. Let's go hang out, and I can give you all of the things that Jesus is redeeming and restoring in my life. I am far from a perfect person. I can show you example after example in church history. I can show you example after example of people in our world right now who are transformed by the love and grace of Jesus because they trust him. They know Jesus Christ when they sit in the chair of his love. But if that's something that freaks you out, if trust is a hard thing or if trust has been something that's been broken for you in a variety of ways, you don't do this on your own. This is not an individual trust. This is a collective trust. Notice Paul says that we do this with all the saints. That means that the experience of the love and grace of Jesus in our lives is not something we do on our own. And that sounds counter to a lot of our culture. Our culture likes to think that you say a prayer individually and that you get baptized individually and then you become a Christian individually. But there has never, never been a healthy expression of Christianity lived out in the history of the world that has existed just on its own. Christians always, for forever, have realized that the love and grace of Jesus is experienced together. 
Even the people who most focused on their individual relationship with God, people like monks and nuns who go and spend time alone a lot, they still realize, yeah, but we still got to hang out with each other a little bit. Like we still got to live in convents or monasteries, right? There's still groups of them that got together. The idea of doing the Christian faith on your own is not how the love and grace of Jesus gets experienced. And the reason for that is that the way that Christ moves in your life is often the most encouraging thing for me. I deepen my trust when I see how your trust in Jesus has encouraged you. One reason that David was so easily able to sit on this chair is because he saw the rest of you sitting in the same chair. Every single one of you has chosen to trust this chair. And so when he gets ready to sit in it, he knows it's holding all these other people up. It's probably going to hold me. He was able to experience the love and grace of Jesus and entrust himself to it because all of you are doing the same. This is something that happens with all the saints together for us. There's a great quote by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who lived during World War II and was building these underground Christian communities in a place that was illegal. So he had a lot to say about what healthy community looks like. And he said this, when one person is struck by the word, he or she speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother or sister in the mouth of a man or woman. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. We experience the love and grace of Jesus. We really know it when we trust it in community with one another. And when we do that together, Paul says that this knowledge is expansive, seemingly never-ending, in this really beautiful paradoxical, paradoxical picture he gives us. He mentions these dimensional words, the breadth and height and length and depth of the love of Jesus. But then he also mentions that that knowledge that we have also expands beyond anything that we could comprehend. It's simultaneously knowable and beyond something we can plumb the depths of. It's like when you go to the ocean. You stand out on the shore, and you're in that soft, beachy part. I don't know what that's called, where, the, where your feet sink in, and the water's washing over you, and you look out at that horizon, and you see nothing but ocean. You look out at that horizon, nothing but ocean. And then at that horizon, a whole ton of ocean. You are intimately aware in that moment of what the ocean is. It is washing over your feet, quite literally. And yet you're also aware that it keeps expanding beyond the horizons of your ability to see. The ocean is at once intimately knowable and yet overwhelmingly endless. And Christ's love is the same for us. The love of Christ has more breadth, more width than I could ever fully grasp because it's redeeming and restoring people and things that I can't even see right now. The love of Christ has more length than I can fathom because it goes back to before time began and it continues into a future that I can't see. The love of Christ reaches higher than I can perceive at this moment because it is redeeming and restoring the universe and I can't see every part of the universe. And the love of Christ dives deeper than I can comprehend because it went to a grave. It went to death so that we might experience 
And that's why Paul ends this passage the way that he does in verses 20 and 21. He says, Christ's love is able to do far more abundantly than we could hope or ask or imagine. That our minds, our comprehension can't contain the love of Jesus Christ. It just keeps washing over us, wave after wave, day after day. And so to really know the love of Christ is to deeply and profoundly trust in it amidst of a community of people who are doing the same thing together. And when we do that, we are constantly reminded of the ever-expansive reach of his love. So friends, will we trust it? In this room, right now, will we trust it? Will we trust that what Christ has done is really true? Will we trust that all things, from people to plants, from butterflies to baboons, that all things are being redeemed and restored by the person of Jesus? Will we trust that story enough to join it? Enough to devote our time to it, our energy, our money? I can tell you that I'm standing here because I've chosen to trust it. I'm in. There's a theologian who actually passed away a couple years ago, Rachel Held Evans. She puts it this way. She said, if I'm ever going to be wrong about a story, this is the story I want to be wrong about. If there's something I want to bank my life on and risk everything on, this is the story. And I don't think it's wrong. I think it's true because I've experienced it. And I know it's true because so many of you in this room have experienced it. But know that we don't do this on our own. We need each other here. That's why we do this every week. This is not just a contrived event that you show up to and leave. We do this because we're trusting in Jesus together and learning what that means in each of our lives. That's why we meet throughout the week. That's why we ask hard questions in our Bible studies. That's why we have Q&A sessions once a month. That's why we serve the women of this community. That's why we do everything we do together. It's why we cry and laugh together. And so wherever you are on your spiritual journey right now, wherever you are in your life of following Jesus, I would encourage you, take the next step. Whatever it looks like. That may just mean showing up next week, right? It may just mean taking the next little step into trusting. It may mean, if you've been here for a while, serving behind the scenes, helping out at Hope Women's Center teaching a class, or serving on Sunday mornings to make this thing happen. It may mean joining a community group, if you've been on the fringe on, on, in that regard. It may mean simply loving and supporting your neighbors a little bit more, or inviting your coworkers to be a part of this community. Whatever the next step is for you, I encourage you to take it. Because when we choose to sit in the love and grace of Jesus, when we choose to really trust it, then we can experience his redemption and restoration both in ourselves and in the world around us. He's redeeming and restoring stuff all the time. And don't take my word for it. Notice I'm not on a stage here. I'm not standing up above you telling you to do this. I'm with you in it. We're here, we're doing this together. It's not my vision, it's Christ's vision. It's Christ's vision for the church. Friends, would you pray with me? 